The reading was clear, simple, understandable. Do not judge, do not condemn. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and you'll be given even more, more than you could imagine, pressed down, shaken over, running over. I, I was tempted this morning to give those words and repeat that text and then sit down and call that the sermon. After all, we'd probably beat the Baptist to brunch if we were that short. I was also tempted to put that on a card like we did last week. We had a prayer that we were all praying during this, this new season, this fall season together. That prayer was printed on a card. I hope you took that at home and are praying that uh, with you to home or praying it every day with, with us. I was tempted to do the same thing with this text because it is so clear and so obvious and so simple about how Jesus expects us to live. Don't live with judgment. Don't live with condemnation. Be willing to both forgive and receive forgiveness and give not just financially, but give generously of all that you have. Give graciously yourself. Live with joy, a generosity of joy at the center of your heart. That's it. That's the sermon. That's the message that Jesus wants us to understand. And yet, I got to thinking about this. I'll preach this sermon four times today. The last one will be at 5.30 at our North Campus, a kind of contemporary casual service. Greet all the folks who are there afterwards, after it's over, about 6.45, get in my car, head home, and if somebody cuts me off on Dublin Road, all of a sudden that, that spirit of non-judgmentalism is gone, isn't it? Do you remember what George Carlin said? George Carlin said that anyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. And anyone who drives faster than you is a maniac. Now, he's kind of making the same point as Jesus. This might be the first time that George Carlin and Jesus have ever been compared. <laughs> All right, let, let us hope right now that George and, and Jesus are smiling in heaven and having a good, a good laugh about that. But they're making the same point. You see, what George Carlin was saying is, you are the barometer of how people ought to drive. He's, he's kind of pointing out our tendency towards arrogance. That we think, I'm the one, I'm the best driver, I'm the top driver. Anyone who's driving too fast is a, is a maniac. The slow ones are idiots. And do you see how it's going? Jesus essentially is saying the same point, making the same point. It's not about my needs, my desires, my ego, my stuff. It's instead how we live and behave and practice in community that matters more than anything else. It's not about getting what I want. It's about being together in the place that Jesus calls us to be, the place we call the church. Jesus says, do not judge, and you won't be judged. Condemn not, and you won't be condemned. Give, and you'll receive more than you could ever imagine. Too often, though, we get stuck, like I said, worrying about ourselves first, while failing to consider not only the needs of the other, but the view of the other, the concern of the other. Now, but I want, to, I want to be clear about this teaching of, of Jesus here. When Jesus says, do not judge, for you will not be judged, he's not talking about making decisions. He's not, make, he's not talking about making judgments. Instead, what he's really getting at is an arrogant kind of judgmentalism attitude, that one where you puff yourself up, like with George Carlin's comment about, about driving, where we put ourselves at the center, where we make ourselves better, and we look at others and try to find things about them that we can point out about, oh, look at the way he is, look at the way she is. See, oh my goodness, look at their weakness over there. All the while trying to protect ourselves. That's what Jesus is talking about, not about making decisions. If you're married, if you're in a relationship that matters, if you have a job, if you have children, if you have parents, you probably have to make some judgments every day. What's the best way to go through this or with that? Teachers, 
judge, actual real judges in courts, police officers, umpires, business executive, office administrators. You, we could just start listing all kinds of folks who have to make judgments every day. That's not who Jesus is talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Instead, it has to do with the way we see the other and how we understand the other and how we perceive them. It's a willingness to be open, to recognize that with, when another is behaving poorly, there may be something more beneath the surface that we don't even begin to know about. It's about an invitation from Jesus to live with joy at the center of who we are, to check that arrogant attitude to the side, that cynical way of looking at the world and push it away so that we can have joy, a generosity of joy, a generosity of grace, a generosity of, of hope and love at the center of our hearts. That's an invitation to a new way of life, but sometimes it's easier to point fingers and to condemn than it is to open our arms and welcome. When Julie and I were in college, we attended Northwest Christian College in Eugene, Oregon. It was my second year of school and we found this church that we really liked. It was a church that was brand new, had taken over an old elementary school. They bought the entire campus of the school and they used their little gymnasium as their sanctuary, as their worship space. In fact, they built it up in the round. They used the bleachers on both sides and then put chairs in two semicircles around what was the center court of the, of the gym, the jump circle. That's where they built a round stage. They had a band there and the preacher. The preacher, this was 1978, the preacher wore jeans. We thought that was the wildest, most radical thing we'd ever seen. Who would have thought 40 years ago that wearing jeans would be such a radical thing? But today, tons of preachers are wearing jeans. I'll wear jeans tonight at 5.30. Don't tell him I told you this, but Ron Jenkins was wearing jeans this morning at the 9 o'clock service. But 40 years ago, no one did this. The little band they had, they played blues and rock and roll and gospel, and they were very good. Most of the people who attended were college-age kids like us in their, in their late teens, early 20s. There were some really old folks that were like 35, 36. It was a great fun church. The preacher was really good. He, he walked around on that center, on that center jump circle and, and preached from his heart and preached from the Bible, held a Bible in one hand, not a single note, could tell stories and, and just go on. It was really wonderful until one day, after about a year, he preached a sermon on divorce. You see, a member of their board, a man, was getting a divorce from his wife and their church kicked him out. You can't be divorced and be a leader in this church. So not only did they kick him off the board, they kicked him and his wife out of the church. Julie and I were a little disturbed by this, and we sat down with one of the associate ministers, the one who was in charge of the, the young adult fellowship, and, and said, you know, um, we understand the teaching of the church, but it seems like this couple needs support and love and encouragement and grace and forgiveness more now than at any time, and why would we kick them out? And Associate minister didn't want to have a conversation. He said, that's it. Roy's sermon on Sunday was clear and direct. They're gone. Any more questions? And we left. Jesus' teaching is very clear, but sometimes it's much easier, isn't it? To practice condemnation, put down, arrogance, rudeness, point our finger at the other, point out their sins and their problems while completely ignoring our own. Jesus is saying, essentially, if you're a judgmental person with a judgmental attitude, the kind that jumps to quick and simplistic conclusions, you're going to receive the same sort of treatment. You're going to be treated in the same way. If you condemn others, you're going to be open to condemnation. 
Tom Wright, who's a good New Testament scholar, says the teaching is simple, basic, clear, and in the church, it's scarce. It's a hard thing to read when I read that last week in my prep. But it seems that it's true. I'm talking about the church universal, especially in the United States of America, where even from the highest office in the land to the smallest, name-calling and bullying seems to be the normal practice rather than the opposite. And yet here's this word from Jesus, that if we would simply take it seriously and put it into practice, we could change not only our church, but our community, maybe even our country. If people looked and said, look at how those folks love each other and care for each other. This section that uh, we heard from the Gospel of Luke is from what Luke calls uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, much of the content that's in Luke here is also in Matthew's Gospel, and there it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I have some really long commentaries and, and books that you can read in my office if you'd like to come by later about those two differences and how they developed and, and all of that. But essentially, Jesus is making the same point, whether he's on the plain or the mountain or on the Sea of Galilee or wherever it is, he wants his disciples and his followers and us to understand this, this teaching. In fact, in Matthew, it gets really clear. There's one point where Jesus says, says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, why is it you're criticizing the speck that you can barely see in your neighbor's eye while you got this gigantic log coming out of your own? He's trying to make a little, a pretty serious point. He's trying to make a little bit of a joke. When I was in, when Sunday school as a little boy, I remember seeing a cartoon in our Sunday school materials where there was this man with a little tiny speck of wood in his eye and the other man who was pointing his finger at him had this gigantic tree growing out of his face. It's not meant to be taken literally, folks. It's just a way of Jesus saying, look, if we pay attention to ourselves first and recognize how much we are in need of forgiveness, maybe then we'll be willing to forgive the other. A modern translation that I read of this text makes it real clear. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. In my notes, in capital letters, it says, ouch. And I say that because I can think of so many times in my own life when I could see everybody else's specks and I got a redwood that I'm ignoring growing out of my own eye. G.K. Chesterton, the brilliant British poet and theologian said, critics, criticize yourselves too. All these teachings from Jesus in, in Matthew and in Luke show us that Jesus wants us to understand that the church and the community that Jesus has created, the church is to be the place where we are not to put the other down, but to offer them a hand up. A put down is so much easier, isn't it? But a hand up is a way of saying, in the spirit of Jesus, let us work together on whatever this issue might be. Think about this for a moment. Jesus says, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Every relationship you have, everyone that matters, whether it's you and your spouse or you and your children or you and your parents or your best friends or somebody that you work with very closely at, at, at the office or at school or wherever it might be, every single one of those will have, if it matters, you'll have a moment when you need to forgive or you'll need to be forgiven. This, this teaching speaks to the very centrality of who we are as human beings. 
to the relationships that matter the most. And then there's an invitation at the end to this, this generosity of, that begets generosity that just overflows with, with goodness. It's a generosity of grace, a generosity of hope, a generosity of love, a generosity of, of the willingness to, to dream with, for goodness sakes, to, to dream with God of what God might do next, not just in our lives, but also in the community where we find ourselves, especially in a community of faith. I've seen it happen before. My friend Sam was a board leader at a church in Atlanta. I knew the church well. I knew the pastor, of course. I had many friends in that congregation. My friend Sam was the leader of the board, and they came into a crossroads, and he made a decision. He led a certain way, and, oh, he, he got hammered, not by a lot of people, but, but just by a couple, and there was one person in particular who just went after him. This one made, made public statements about my friend Sam, attacked, attacked him, denigrated his character, put him down, actually uh, resorted to name-calling, put stuff in writing. It was ugly, nasty, and mean. Some church consultant once said to me, church fights tend to be most vicious because there's so little at stake. Well, my friend Sam was caught up in the middle of that. In fact, he sat down with me and wanted some advice, and I'm embarrassed to tell you what I said to him. I said, Sam, I think you need to attack back. I think you need to go after this one. You need to let them know that they can't call you names. You just need to get after them and, and go public and name call them if you need to and put them down and name all the problems they've had. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I gave that advice. I know the Bible. I was ordained back then. I was much younger, but I'd been through seminary. I'd been ordained, gone through all the training, and it was as though I completely forgot everything Jesus taught. My friend Sam kind of smiled, shook his head. He said, you know, I wanted to do that. For weeks now, I've dreamed of revenge. I've dreamed of, of moments in front of a congregational meeting when I could call this one up and I could just rip them apart and go down from one to two to three all the way to ten things that I know about their lives and the way they live. I just, I've dreamed about that. He said, but you know, I, I learned a lot about the Bible when I was a kid in Sunday school and one day when I was making a list of the stuff I was going to do to that person, I remembered what Jesus taught. Don't judge don't contemn. At some point, didn't he say, Glenn, love your enemies? And so that night when I went to bed, I sat down and I told God everything in a prayer that I was feeling. I was open and honest. I expressed my anger. I said some words that God probably doesn't want me to use in public, I, but, but I just was real. And at the end, I said, Lord, help me love this one. Give me the strength of character I need to love them. He said, that night was my best night of sleep in weeks. The next day I woke up, I wasn't quite ready to love them, but I just felt like I was alive. I felt like I'd lost 50 pounds. It was a whole new way of being. I, I love telling that story. If Sam was here, he'd be embarrassed for me to say it. But do you hear the, do you hear the lightness of it? Do you hear the, the newness of it, the, the new life that's there? It's, it's almost what Jesus calls a, a, a baptism of the Spirit. It's a, it's a new way of beginning and being. All of a sudden, he, it's like he literally did, as he said, lose a 50-pound burden. He was almost floating on air. He was so excited at the way his life had turned around when he let go of the revenge and the anger and instead moved toward forgiveness and life. You know, I, I read about this way of understanding Jesus' words in a commentary on the Gospel of Luke this week, written by Ben Witherington. 
and Amy Jill Levine. Ben describes himself as an evangelical Methodist New Testament scholar. Amy Jill describes herself as a feminist agnostic Jewish New Testament scholar. You couldn't find two people further apart in the way they see the world and understand the world, except they both have a love, a love of the New Testament. And they, they wrote this, this commentary together with the idea that there's too much in the theological world that is mean and nasty and ugly. I don't know if you know this, but scholars can really get after each other. They can try to prove the other one uh, wrong and really say, my point is right and here's why. And they work hard to conclude and keep the other one put down so that they can be puffed up. And Amy, Jill, and, and, and Ben are saying, you know what? We disagree a lot. But Ben will say she's smart and she'll say he's smart. We got a lot to share, and what we're trying to do in this commentary, they say, is we're trying to model a way of disagreeing while having a conversation about it, rather than determining a winner or, or a loser. What a, what a beautiful thing that is. Now, the commentary is 700 pages long, and it's $40 for a paperback, so you probably aren't going to run out and buy it right away. I'll read it for you. It's, it's, it's okay. But I, I kind of want to invite Ben and Amy Jill to be a part of our congregation. And, and that, frankly, maybe I want to invite myself to take on the same kind of attitude of, of modeling, of living with each other in the way that Jesus invites us. Don't judge, he says. Don't condemn. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. When did we forget? When did we forget this voice? this teaching, this understanding? When did it become so foreign and far away to the way we see the world? You know, I think part of the problem is this. It's actually the voice within. I think one of the reasons we move away from Jesus' teaching and look to condemn and judge and put down is because there's a voice inside each of us too often that says, you're not worthy, you're not good enough you really have to be careful if someone sees the real you. And so in order to keep anyone from seeing inside of who I am, what do we do? We then project the worst of ourselves onto others, hoping that the other will never see us. Thomas Lane, a great Methodist preacher, says, most of our defeats come because we've not learned to fight effectively against the enemy within. Maybe what we need today in this world is a church that is more than ready to make room for anyone and everyone, a church that is more than ready to leave con condemnation and judgmental arrogance behind with arms instead open wide to anyone and to everyone so that in the spirit of Jesus Christ we can experience here in this place truly what it means to be a part of the family of God. Let me close with this. There were two little girls. One, one was named Katie. Katie was tall, slender, and fast. Allison, her friend, was shorter, but more muscular and stronger. There was a game that they liked to play. They were both 10 years old. There was a game they liked to play at their, at their school. Way out in the athletic field, there was this little hump that had never been flattened. It was kind of, a, kind of the hill. And what the kids often would do is they'd start at one end of the field, and they'd run all the way down there. And, and what did they play? It was king of the hill. So you can get there the quickest, and then get up on the hill, and then stay there. Well, Katie was the fastest, and she beat all the other girls, and she got there first, and she was up on the hill. But Allison, the one who was not as fast, but was stronger, she got there. She got to the top. She knocked Katie down. She 
she knocked her down kind of hard and she bumped her head and she was hurt and she was crying and she was angry and upset and she walked off the field and the next day the two girls refused to talk to each other. Katie, the tall, lean one and, and Allison, the short but more muscular one. They'd been best friends for years. Now they're not even talking, but they talked a lot about the other to their friends, so much so that their friends stopped hanging around them. They couldn't stand the way these two girls were behaving and acting. One of them said, you guys got to get over it. And finally one day, Katie called Allison. It's after a couple of weeks. And she said, Allison, I'm sorry for what I've said. You are the stronger one. I shouldn't have gotten so angry. And Allison said, no, Katie, you're the stronger one because you were strong enough to call first. It's a simple story, isn't it? And it's true. It's an invitation to a new way of life. Amen.